Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. The Spelman College Museum of Fine Art in Atlanta is showing a survey of work from the 1970s and early 1980s by my first guest. The show is titled Howardina Pindell. It will be on view through December 5th. Pindell is also featured in the MoMA PS1 exhibition Greater New York, which opens this Sunday, October 11th. Pindell has had an unusually rich and varied art career. After earning her MFA from Yale University in 1967, she worked as a curator at the Museum of Modern Art in New York before becoming a professor of art at what was then called the State University of New York at Stony Brook and what is now called Stony Brook University. Museums such as the Wadsworth Athenaeum, the Art Gallery at Georgia State University, and the Heckscher Museum of Art have presented solo exhibitions of her work. Pindell has also received a pile of awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Most Distinguished Body of Work or Performance Award from the College Art Association, and two National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships. On the second segment, organizer and spokesman for the Renoir Sucks at Painting movement, Max Geller, discusses his group's recent protest at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston and why he and his group are opposed to museums hanging any and all paintings by Renoir. The protest has received worldwide media attention, but almost all of that coverage has focused so much on the humorous Renoir hook that it has missed the point and much of the conceptual intent of the project. I'll ask Geller about that specifically. But first, Howardina Pindell, after the break. International Pop at the Dallas Museum of Art chronicles the global emergence of pop in the 1960s and early 1970s. While previous exhibitions have primarily focused on the dominance of pop activity in New York and London, this exhibition examines work from artists across the globe who were confronting many of the same radical developments. International Pop navigates a fast-paced world packed with bold and thought-provoking imagery, revealing a vibrant cultural period shaped by widespread political revolution. International Pop is on view October 11th to January 17th. Visit dma.org for more information. Experience tomorrow's art history today, for free, and in a beautiful, intimate setting at Blaffer Art Museum. On view this fall, did you know we taught them how to dance? The first solo museum exhibition for British-Nigerian artist Zina Sarawiwa, and a test of art's capacity to envision new concepts of environmentalism. Also on view, Time Image an international group survey of temporal concerns in contemporary art. More at blafferartmuseum.org. And we're back. Howardina Pindell, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm happy to be speaking to the audience. I want to start in a place slightly different than than we usually start. You have spoken eloquently and at length about forms of racism you have faced throughout your life, including recently on, on just an absolutely fantastic episode of the Wonder Root podcast that you recorded recently at Spelman. We'll link to that program on manpodcast.com. I think people will enjoy it. And it tells, and on that show, you tell a lot of stories that are in your work, such as in the video piece, Free White in 21. But you also just kind of share some stories from your life and where your perspective and experience on, on race comes from. But I want to ask, I want to I kind of raise that in a different way. And I'm hoping you can tell us about your father, Howard Pindell. He was a pioneering educator and civil rights protagonist in Maryland, not far from where I live in Washington, D.C. Back in the 1930s, he, he came to know and work with Thurgood Marshall. And I'm curious about your experience of being his daughter and and his experience with the school board in Frederick County and his experience with Marshall? Well, I, you know, I found when we were going through his things when he was in the process, he was in hospice, I'll put it that way. And I did find a very sort of a brief letter from Thurgood Marshall to him. And I hold that very precious. And then he was honored by the Frederick, Frederick Maryland Historical Society before he passed away when he was still able to get around. So I was always happy that he did get the recognition before he passed away. He was a principal of a school in Frederick, Maryland, and it was segregated then. The teachers were getting the same salary as the janitors in the white schools. The white janitors in the white, white schools. White janitors, right, thank you, in the white schools. And so they decided to do a lawsuit, and actually Thurgood Marshall did win the suit. But my father was the person that was used, I guess, in a way as a scapegoat. 
he agreed to do that under those conditions because most of the other faculty at that point were married, and he felt that if he lost the suit, that it would not be harming his children or wife. So he went ahead with it, and then uh, in a sly way, or I would say in a sly way, the White Board of Education offered him a raise, a promotion really, and he took it, and then they fired him. In other words, they gave him an advancement into whatever part of the school system, which allowed them to fire you at any time. So then he came to Philadelphia. Meanwhile, there was a new scapegoat that agreed to go through with it, and the case was won. My father then came to Philadelphia and started working for the Quakers. He also started working with people who were either physically or mentally disabled to find work for them. And he must have been pretty good at it. He, you know, people really, really liked him. He had a very nice personality until he got dementia. And then it was like 360 degree turn. But he had helped a lot of people. Yeah, he was the plaintiff in that that suit in Frederick County, Maryland, and the promotion, which is in almost any, I mean, this whole story is in almost any book about 20th century Maryland and civil rights history. He was promoted just to kind of force him out as the plaintiff of the suit because the school district thought it could have a better case with someone else as, as, a, as a plaintiff. So this gets you as, 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 a, as a young girl into the state of Pennsylvania. You're living in northwest Philadelphia. And you were lucky enough to have a teacher who... Actually, you know, I had two teachers. Who, were, who, who, who saw your talent for mm-hmm. The first teacher was a Mrs. Ozer, and she brought my parents. She asked them to meet with her, and she said, your daughter is very talented. This is what you have to do. You have to take her to museums, galleries. I don't know if there were many galleries in Philadelphia, and to meet with artists. I was eight years old, and they followed the instructions. Then when I was in sixth grade, there was amazing. I remember both women's names because my memory is so bad, but Miss McCullough, felt I was very talented and she would just supply the supplies and would let me sit in the back of the room and paint all the time. And sadly she left. She had cancer and yes, I just remember though she was really good to me. And I did meet with Mrs. Ozer maybe ten years ago while she was still alive and could thank her. Uh, it was an opening for the Flasher Art Memorial, which was the Saturday class that I started learning to draw, you know, on I believe she must have recommended it. And so my drawing was actually pretty good because I had started so early. What do you remember about the Philadelphia Museum of Art from when you were a girl? Well, it it, it has some uh, a funny part to it. A friend of the family had gone into the Egyptian collection, you know, while just wandering around, and there was a Fayum encaustic portrait on a, a mummy. But the mummy was not in a case. It was like all wrapping, except this portrait where the face was, and it looked like me. So I called my mother and said, you have to you have to see this, hoarding this in the museum. So I was dragged to the museum, and sure enough, you know, so I became really curious, you know, about all the things I was seeing, because I'd never seen them before. And it's sort of hard to believe a child would recognize Duchamp. They have a very good Duchamp collection. And I really thought the, uh, what was it, the bride's bear, the glass. Yeah, the very, hanging, the hanging mm-hmm, glass. Mm-hmm. I really loved that one. I hated the one where there was like a peephole. You know, I thought that was just sexist, even though I wasn't thinking that way as a child. I didn't like it. But I was just intrigued by his... He was very clever, you know. He just kind of didn't let any taboos bother him. Oh, yes, when I was at the Modern, the irony is I got to register whatever, uh, the black on Belize. Um, the piece that had like different sorts of things in uh, like a tiny suitcase. So I thought it was sort of interesting that I would, you know, in later years, I would catalog this particular multiple that he had made. You, you were a curator at the Museum of Modern Art in, in the late 1970s. So let's go from there into into talking about about your work. The first piece I'd like to talk about is out of chronological sequence. It's your your famous video. Free white and twink. It's amazing that that thing has legs. <laughs> well, it, what, what's the reason I wanted to start there is because it's an anomaly. I mean, you you were a painter. You are a painter. 
who, you know, going back to the 60s, you came out of the painting program at Yale. And and Free White and 21 is a video, and you made it in 1980. Why in 1980 did you want to make a video? You know, I don't know. I was just, you know, when I get ideas, it may not be in my, uh, for example, the video drawings. I'm not a photographer. I was going to ask about that next, yeah. Yeah, but that was the only way I could perceive using drawings and the television. I basically, you know, put um, using acetate ink on um, acetate that would stick to the TV screen if you turned it on, uh, the static, hold it. And at that point, I was doing a series of pieces where I was writing tiny little numbers on little dots of paper. And it just gave me an idea. So I, you know, things like Etch-a-Sketch or, oh, I can't remember, things I saw as a child. But anyway, so I started drawing on acetate and attaching it to the TV screen. When I was at Yale, I studied uh, black and white photography, developing film and so forth. His name Walker Evans. His TA is the one that taught the class. And uh, the class was a mixture of artists and architects. And so I learned, you know, how to develop stuff and all. So I didn't, I don't know. I only took a video workshop after I did the piece. There was a woman, I don't know how it happened. I mean, I had an idea. And I was contacted by a woman, I think her last name was Leno Polino, and she had an all-women's crew. So I decided, I don't know, I just don't know how it came to me. I went to Woolworths on 34th Street, which is, of course, gone now. And I bought a blonde wig, and then I bought some stage makeup and some white stockings. Sunglasses? <laughs> yes, I, those glasses were mine from years and years ago. Yeah, they weren't they weren't contemporary to that <laughs> You know, so I don't know. It just seemed to come to me. I did a second one, but it's kind of gruesome. Uh, it's called doubling, and which is uh, Robert Liston's term for Nazi doctors who could, you know kill and mutilate people in the camps and then go home, you know, you know, like take off their shoes and, uh, you know, put their feet up and watch TV. Probably TV wasn't in, in uh, vogue then, but in other words, it became like the perfect family member or whatever, husband. And then they, to go to work, you know, they would like Mengele, you know, mutilate and whatever. And so he used the term doubling. So what I did was I named the video doubling and then I uh, hired some just people to read a script which basically and they were all white saying things like you know everything you have is ours and if you don't give up you know just kind of the general uh, subtext of when you know any country goes in to get the people's minerals or start a war or whatever and then at the end of it I had gotten images from an activist group, and it showed the results in terms of how people were physically harmed. But it's a it's a short one, I think only about two min, two minutes or so. And um, the kitchen actually has it in archival conditions. I if I need one, I have to ask them simply because I don't have the equipment to do the duplicating and all of that. Free White and 21 is also up on Ubu Web, so we'll have a link to it from manpodcast.com. The the narrative of Free White and 21, which is sadly au courant, or yeah. stays au I think that's why it stays, has stayed so long. Is you describing a series of racially inflected slash racist experiences you've had over the course of your life, and in, and some of them are quite recent to 1980, and some of them go back to when you were a school child. Did you write out a script? Did you did you narrate them off the top of your head? How did you go about? I think it was off the top of my head. I probably had like a like an outline. I, it's been so long ago that I, I really don't remember. 35 years. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. My mother would always send me clothes I didn't like. She was very conservative. <laughs> and so I used the clothes that she sent me to change my wardrobe, you know, from one scene to another. I was going to ask you about that because I thought actually, I mean, to my eye and knowing your your, your painting, the closest... Th- that Free White and 21 gets to being painterly is in your use of color, both in terms of what you're wearing and in front of the background. Did you 
consciously go for big, loud, booming color? Was that a, was that a conscious artistic decision? I don't think it was a conscious decision. I, I mean, I just took what I had, and you know, the wig is the only. Oh no, the wig and the makeup is the only. Am I answering your question correctly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because one of the things that strikes me about why that piece stays so fresh is because when it is on a screen, it is the color is so vivid that you can't not look at it. That that it is not enough to hear the narrative. It is not enough to hear your your voice in either character you play in the piece. All that booming color forces you to keep looking at it, which becomes important over the course of the piece because you have to see the the second character, the white character that you play. Otherwise, you know, the the, the, the you you wouldn't necessarily pick up on there being a different character there if you were just hearing it. If, 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 I'm saying that horribly. I'm sorry. That's but right. if, if, <laughs> if visitors, yeah, if uh, listeners watch the piece on Ubu Web, it immediately become clear. The other reason I wanted to start out of sequence with Free White and 21 is that it's a piece in which your frustration at racism is really palpable and out there and clear in a way that a lot of black American abstract painting of the 50s and 60s wasn't. And so you come out of Yale in the the late 60s, and the first body of work for which you became known was in the mid-70s, and they're paintings in which you make use of a hole punch. At first, for use as a kind of a stencil through which you would push or spray paint, and then you would make use of the holes that you know, were left over in the punch after paper had been punched. So I have a, I have a, a bunch of questions about that. Could, could you kind of take us back to your studio in the 70s and tell us how you went from using paint brushes to finding a whole punch of, of you know, I have use and interest? no idea. I have no, that memory is just gone. I remember that I enjoyed punching the holes and people who've worked for me in the past say they find it very soothing and you know, like a kind of meditation. But I didn't have a variety of uh, sizes that I have now. Now I can punch a hole about two inches wide. And in those days, you only had, you know, like a quarter inch punch. The stamp punches we all used for binders and stuff yeah. back in the day. Yeah, so, I, you know, my tools were limited. And my basic thing at the beginning was to put numbers on the dots, but I don't know what started me thinking about punching out dots. I remember there was a dealer, Carl Soloway from Cincinnati, who came to see my work, and he's the one that was the catalyst for my using circles. And well, there's another thing, too, in that he was sort of teasing me. He said, how many circles? Because I don't throw anything out. How many circles, you know, are on the painting or whatever? And so that's when I actually started counting. And the counting was sequential, and then it just became random. You know, I mean, I didn't try to go from one to two to three. I just simply, you know, I would number them, throw them in a bag, and then uh, attach them to graph paper. So your interest was, it sounds like, more in the process and using materials rather than making a reference to pointillism or post-impressionist painting. Well, one thing, too, I think was the strongest, perhaps, influence and memory was my father and I and my mother. We went to Ohio to visit my mother's mother. And so she and her sisters were kind of hanging out with, you know, my grandmother. And so my father said, you know, he loves to drive around, or he did love to drive around. So we went into Kentucky, which was close. Uh, My grandmother lived in southern Ohio. And we went into Kentucky. My father loved root beer. So we stopped, and, uh, you know, they would frost. the, The glass would be frosty and cold. And what I noticed was there was a red circle underneath on the bottom, and it turns out that the silverware and the dishware, all of it was segregated. So that only black people would use this glassware or whatever, and white people wouldn't have that mark. And I did ask my father, why is this here? What is this? You know, in the language of a child. And uh, my father said, you know, basically, it's a segregated cookware, dishes, whatever, mugs. 
in fact, I replicated it. I found a mug that was the same, and then I found, I don't know how I found this red circle, and I stuck it on the bottom of the, of the mug. So I actually did a kind of fabrication of the original. And I sometimes laughingly say, you know, people say, you know, why, why the circle? I just tell them I was scared to death by a circle. So it's a biographical reference. It's a really biographical to... reference, yeah. So when you started punching, were you immediately aware that you were making a reference back to your own childhood, or did you only come to realize that many, many, many years later? Many years later, yeah. I know one thing that might be of interest is my parents got me paint by numbers. So I had those little tiny things, you know, and then you just match it with the color. And I remember the first one I did was Christ at Gethsemane. I think that's the name of the place, I guess, where he was praying. I'm not religious at all, but I just remember that particular one. So, you know, you would have numbers for the colors and then where they should go on the piece. And, you know, I sort of, it was like a toy, you know. But recently I've been thinking about that, you know, that it was the use of numbers. But also my father's first degree was in mathematics, and he taught, like, math and science. So I would see him writing in this sort of journal tiny numbers on what looked like a kind of graph paper. And when he passed away, I found one of them. And sadly, I've lost it somewhere in the debris here. But um, I did take a slide of it. And years ago, I used to show a slide of his journals. And then, of course, along with the the circle under the root beer glass. But now people want you to talk less about your work. And there were other things that I wanted to do rather than focus entirely, you know, on on, on the dots per se. Because I still use dots. So, so when we when, when we take that story and take the story of your experience in Kentucky. It almost sounds like you mashed them up to come up with the 1973 untitled works you made, which feature hole punches with numbers written on them on graph paper. Yes. One of those is at MoMA. It's from 1973. It's untitled number four, and we'll have an image and, and details up on the website. We mentioned the video drawings earlier, and these are photographs that have arrows and numbers and directional notations on them. One of them, video drawings, boxing, is in the show at Spellman. I'm not a sports fan. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that right off. I am not a sports fan. I, well, I, well, I wonder what, why did you decide you wanted to draw on videos? What about engaging with video in, in, in such a flat, two-dimensional way was of interest? I just, I don't know. I mean, I I really don't know. I thought there was a lot of beauty in it. Yeah, there was just a lot of beauty in the result. It was like playful. It was like a, um, you know, because I used it also to make it so I wouldn't have so much eye strain. Because basically, I got the TV because I was doing the numbers, but I was like, I had a very short focal length. And it can produce, you know, some kind of eye strain. So basically, I just, you know, I just did it. (laughs) You get this kind of lyrical blur as the athletes move, but this very specific linearity from the drawings you've made on the photograph. I don't know. It was fun. It was so different. They do look like fun. (laughs) Yeah, they're a lot of fun. I mean, you have to, I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't taken the photography course at Yale. Because, I mean, I I felt confident, you know, that I could handle it. And basically, in the beginning, I used film. And then the digital thing took off. So now I have to rethink. I have digital, you know, I have a, a couple of Nikons and Pentaxes. I could get really fabulous cameras I'll use at B&H. And now I know why. Everybody's selling their equipment to buy digital. Another specific piece I'd like to ask about is a piece that is in MoMA's collection and which was on view for most of last year, titled Memory Past, six or seven feet tall. No, it's more than that. It's probably about seven feet wide, and so it's probably about 10 feet tall. It's 12, 12 feet. It's from, it's from 1980-81, and, and as I said, the title is Memory colon Past. What's the memory? I think... Okay, I was in a bad car accident. Suffered a concussion Mm -hmm. and had some memory loss. Yes. 
and my work totally changed as a result. I started my work started to get very very colorful, and it's it's just hard to explain. Like everything changed. I'm trying to remember whether the video drawings. Oh no, they were after the accident. Video drawings are seventy five, seventy six ish. It would have been yeah before I had the head injury. Now. I mean, for some reason, I like doing things that are kind of random. Uh, and I think the hole punching and then reassembling it in a three-dimensional way, at first, that was actually the second part of the numbers because when I first started, the numbers were, you know, on a flat two-dimensional surface, you know, circles attached. And it's interesting, what I used was not glue but matte medium. And it's it's retained. It hasn't turned brown. It hasn't done anything terrible, which is a really big relief. I don't know. I just I just had fun with it. It's one of the interesting things about the piece, in part because of its size, in part because of the layers of its surface and the way the colors of the hole punch absorb and reflect light and the way the piece that you can kind of see through the paper underneath the piece or the thread that makes up the piece, there is a, a an enormous temptation when standing in front of it to try to find um, an image in it as if it was kind of like a blurry television. It seems to suggest that there is something there to be found. Was that part of your intent? Or is that... It was just all a- random. Yeah, because, well... I, I'm not a sports person, although I mean one of the, one of my mother's brothers taught physical ed. But I like the motion. I like the motion very much on the you know on the on the once I would photograph it. It was you use a, a tripod, you attach the camera, and then you focus on what part of the TV you want. You turn it on, you put on your acetate, and sometimes there are separate acetates you can shift around. And then you use a, a cable release, so that a long one, so that your movement will not cause the would not cause the image to come out blurry. You focus on the matrix of the screen, on the grid, and that way you can get a fairly steady image. You don't have to do like the whole screen, but I would just use the uh, cable release because by the time you think, you know. It's gone. So you just randomly release, you know, use the cable release and, you know, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And then you look at what your results are. You know, I mean, because if I have any thought in the process, I'll miss it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because by the time you have the thought, it it would be gone, the image. So you just uh, find something that you like and then you like looking at the image but not i mean i i have no knowledge whatsoever about the you know about the game i i'm really almost anti-sports but i mean i it would help to be pro sports because i'd be healthier you know physically healthier but one thing i just want to say one thing about I, you know, again, I'm not athletic, but I had a mosaic that I was doing for Lehman College, and it was going to be installed in the new, you know, in their new gymnasium, and I hung out, you know, I went to games, I went to classes, I did all kinds of things and took pictures, and I, after seeing what the men do in basketball to prepare I was just, it blew my mind. It totally blew my mind. Just the whole sort of aspect of the choreography. They get kind of tormented by their, uh, you know, by the boss of the team. But it's amazing. I mean, they have to be young to do what they do. I was very, very, very impressed by the basketball players. So that kind of opened, you know, squeaked open the door a little bit from my being a little more tolerant when it comes to any kind of sports stuff. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, in an interview you did with Lynn Hirschman for, I think it was Stanford University's Women Art Revolution Project, yes. you talked about discovering Ava Hess's work 
at Cooper Union during the years in which you were a curator at MoMA. And I wonder what you remember seeing and how you think it entered or impacted your work. Well, I remember the patina. It looked like she had used latex and powder. Just love that look. And when I changed from oil to acrylic, I didn't like the plastic aspect of it. It looked plastic. <laughs> you know, so I didn't like that at all. That is when I decided, because it looked like she literally had powdered the pieces, and that's when I started changing the surface. I used powder, or then, probably still now, powder and glitter to try to... Oh, that's right. Yes, it's an abstract painting. Yes, I used baby powder then. And things, of course, have changed a lot. I'm starting to work just, again, the painkiller aspect of it. Uh, I'm starting to work on some of the large abstract paintings again. So now, instead of my being limited, uh, there's like an iridescent powder I can use. There is glitter that's like pearl. There's glitter that's like all colors in the rainbow. So basically when I, you know, work on the canvas and I've restructured it, you know, with the cutting out and all, the last step is when I use a medium. Maybe I'll mix a matte and a gloss medium and I'll paint certain areas. It dries transparent, but I use that as a with a different kind of surface. Jack Whitten does the same thing. Jack Whitten changes his surfaces by using mediums and and such. And so that all came out of Ava Hess. And so you were you were at the time a, a, a painter, still are, but seeing what Ava Hess did on latex, you found something in it that had a relationship to what you were doing, even though you were doing totally different things. And it was the surface. It was, yes, I was an oil painter. I used oil, and then I got allergic to it, and it turns oh, out, really? yeah, it turns out that for all the years I was in school, they never, ever told us not to use lead white. Oh my gosh! You know, and when I was at Yale, I was cooking up this medium that was beautiful. It was lead white, I think linseed, something else, and when you cooked it, I remember having a, one of those hot plates. You got what looked like wax. And it was an incredible medium. I mean, your color would not change with this medium, but you could die because it was arsenic. So uh, the fumes were. So I just, you know, my hands would start to swell and all. So that's why I switched over to acrylic. But I did not like that plasticky surface. And that's, you know, I met Hessa. I didn't meet her personally, but I was at her opening. And I just looked at the work. It was like, you know, I really like that. One of the things in later years was uh, people said that when they would see the work, they felt it was uh, like a fresco. In other words, it was hard, and they, you know, wondered. I mean, I, I told them I rolled them, and they're on tubes, and they're shocked because when they see it, for them, it looks like it's a rigid support. You know, now you could not, I could not have done this technique at all with oil. I'd have to use an acrylic, you know, to do what I do, you know, because oil won't take that kind of beating if you're, first of all, if you had to frame it, it would be a fortune. And if you rolled it, I don't know if you could avoid it cracking in time, which it may do anyway, whether you rolled it or not. You know, I had just had to be inventive. One thing I did was I got in touch with 3M because I wanted to spray for the three, you know, the three-dimensional pieces. And so they sent someone to my studio. At the time, I was on 7th Avenue and 28th Street. I had a very nice loft. It was like 2,300 square feet, I think, 13 ceilings, top floor, so you roasted in the summer. And I, I contacted 3M, and they sent a little guy with a suitcase, and he came up what I was doing and he suggested and he wasn't hostile or anything he suggested that I use something like it's called a spray photo dry mount now I don't even know if that product is out it is still there but now I more or less put the spots on one by one now on the big big paintings no I sprinkle them and paint them into the to the paint you know paint the spots there's no numbering I, what I'll do are color drawings and destroy them 
and then redistribute them. Or I might just do, you know, a drawing that's not, I mean, it's just color. As long as you have archival. A lot of the students now do not want to be bothered with archival. Part of it is it's too expensive for them as students. And some students, I know we've had one graduate student who did not want to document her way, her work in any way. So it was very ephemeral when she did a performance piece. That was it. She didn't want anyone to photograph it or record it in any way. So, you know, I kind of worry about the legacy of of this generation because it feels like they've almost given up, like, you know, gone without a trace. So, I, you know, I do tell them, and I, you know, I guess I bore them about, you know, getting, if you're using paper, uh, it has to be archival, not just acid-free. Acid-free slows the, pro- you know, the process down, but it's still, you need, you know, you need acid-free and 100% rag paper. And that includes in sketchbooks. No, but I did get what you were saying. I mean, the, the, the broader point about surface and how you, how Ava Hess gave you a way to play with surface was great. Well, Howardina Pindell, thanks so much for talking with me. Sure. The fourth iteration of the renowned series Greater New York opens this Sunday, October 11th at MoMA PS1 in Queens. This year, the exhibition showcases both emerging and established artists living and working in New York City and the points of connection between them, while also exploring aspects of earlier histories of the city itself and its changing political, social, and architectural fabric. Don't miss this major event. Get more information about it and tickets at momaps1.org. The Hammer Museum presents Uh Uh-Oh, the most comprehensive survey of the Los Angeles-based artist and writer Frances Stark. This exhibition tracks her 25-year career, from early works on paper to more recent performances, animated films, and videos, including her critically acclaimed works My Best Thing and Bobby Jesus's Alma Mater, backed with Reading the Book of David and or Paying Attention is Free. Stark's singular practice explores her own life through an extraordinary range of subjects and mediums while offering a clever critique of contemporary culture. Uh Uh-oh! is on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, October 11th to January 24th. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents After Picasso, 80 Contemporary Artists, on view September 19th through December 27th. After Picasso is a major exhibition examining Picasso's potent legacy and ongoing impact on several generations of artists. This vibrant show fills the entirety of the Wexner Center's galleries and includes a diverse array of work from international talent such as Andy Warhol, Louise Lawler, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Amy Selman, Haimo Zobring, Jasper Johns, and many more. Originally organized by the Dijkter Hallen and called Picasso and Contemporary Art, this exhibition is making its only stop in the United States at the Wexner Center. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Max Geller. He's the organizer and spokesman for the Renoir Sucks at Painting movement. His group recently protested the Renoirs on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. We'll talk about why he and his group are opposed to museums hanging any and all paintings by Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Renoir Sucks at Painting started as an Instagram account. We'll have a link to it from manpodcast.com. It's pretty much must-follow. Max Geller, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Why does Renoir suck? I mean, if you're asking me by what criteria I use to evaluate Renoir's paintings, I suppose the best answer is by looking at him. All of his paintings are breathtakingly insipid and bad. So it's a step to go from finding a painter's work, even a famous painter's work, insipid and bad, to launching a movement. And your movement, as as I mentioned in the intro, is called Renoir Sucks at Painting. It's on Instagram. It picketed the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston earlier this week. What drove you from finding the paintings insipid and bad to forming a movement around that? Well, there's lots of bad art out there. There is, as I'm sure listeners of this podcast can attest to, there's plenty of treacle out there. But 
not much of it is exalted to the level or to the high altar of art by curators at fine art museums. I think Renoir's presence in, in, in museums, even though there are sort of strong scholarly currents in, in art criticism that would agree with me, the fact that Renoir is in every major fine art museum in the country indicates or, or, or I think speaks to the, the, the necessariness of the movement. So what was the first step you took in starting the movement? Besides being nauseated by uh, a visit to the Barnes Museum, I would say... <laughs> <laughs> a common reaction, I, mean, <laughs> I must I must admit. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think I would love to tell you that I, I was reading Vladimir Lenin's essays on the long march through our cultural institutions and being in the Barnes made me realize that Renoir was the first step in that long march. But really, I think it was just sort of like the internet provides a, a nice outlet for snark. And once I started doing it, I just kept finding more and more people who have been waiting their whole lives to be able to express this view as well. So did you start on Instagram then? Yeah, yeah. I started an Instagram called Renoir's Second Painting. Which has several thousand followers. Yeah. But I think I would have a lot more if I didn't post such ugly paintings every day. So so normally, uh, my favorite thing about this podcast to do is that it gives me an excuse to sit around for hours a day and read excellent catalogs that detail historic research and kind of add new knowledge to what I know and to what we all know about art. So to prepare to talk to you, I I went to the Clark Art Institute's website. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's particularly flagrant over in Worcester. And, and called up Renoir's bather arranging her hair from 1885, which is, you know, kind of a, a strange mix of 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 blue boy with you know in, in that kind of beachy clouds and sky setting and a woman who appears to have removed just enough of her dress so that she can sit with her bare bum on a patch of grass while arranging her hair for no apparent reason and i'm guessing that this is the exact kind of thing that set you off yeah i can't i i, I think i mean it's it's hard especially when i talk with sort of people in the art world about this to get them far enough removed from their their day-to-day -to, -day to sort of consider the implications of that steaming pile being in a beautiful gilded frame in a museum. To, like, if, if you were to ask, like, a five-year-old child what, what goes into a museum or, like, a person who didn't have, like, uh, if, if, like, a journalist were to ask a foreign person, what, what, what goes into a museum, I think the answer is, is something to the effect of, oh, they put the best art in museums. And so if you bring a child to the Clark Museum, and like, do you, does anyone, is anyone comfortable with like, teaching our children that this is the pinnacle of art or of painting? I would just say that like, to put that painting on the pedestal, and by putting it in uh, on the wall of a museum, it, it's that's a pedestal. We are sending a really negative message about what we think of as culturally valuable. Makes makes sense to me, and and I think treacle has caused society grievous psychic harm. I think when we talk about treacle, and it's the exaltation of treacle to the level of of high art, we are. We can, we can draw a straight line from, from that choice long ago to the green lighting of movie sequels and uh, Dale Chihuly. So I want to get to the MFA protest, which is full of marvelous cleverness. But as kind of a way of working toward it, I want to go through a couple of the things that you've posted on Instagram. One of them is strongly... I don't know, suggesting or flat out says that either Facebook, Instagram, or both blocked your account? They blocked specific content. Ah, so specific Renoirs. Yeah. And, and I guess that when that happens, either Facebook or Instagram gives you a form that you can fill out in response? Correct. So, for example, this form 
asks, what did you try to do? To which you responded, bravely tell the truth vis-a-vis -a, -vis a pithy distilled, and then I can't read the rest of it because it's it's elsewhere in the, in the, in the typing box. And you were asked by Facebook to explain why you thought their blocking of the Renoir was an error. And you said, Renoir has been a pox on society for too long. We are merely taking a stand versus Renoir's shitty oeuvre and its treacly wake in which we're currently drowning. Did Facebook let you have the picture back? They did not. But <laughs> it turns out that by taking a screenshot of that form, I was able to generate content, which I find to be, it's an ironic uh, response to their censorship, uh, using their censorship as uh, of my content to produce content. Speaking of irony, I believe that you trended on Facebook earlier today. Yeah, that's, I would say that is galling. <laughs> I think I think this is what happened. I mean, if, if if you want to know the truth, I could tell you that like people have been waiting to hear this about Renoir for a long time, and I think a lot of people have. But I think what really happens is that people like news that isn't depressing, which this story is not depressing, because it allows them to then sort of complain about all the depressing stuff in the world and say these people have too much time on their hand. It's sort of like the perfect storm of very light and easy to criticize. That's true, although there is certainly a moment at certain museums at which one can feel depressed by the sheer volume of, 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 of Treacly Renoir. Yeah, I can uh, name 10 off the top of my head, 10 <laughs> such museums. <laughs> one of the posts on your Instagram account includes the headline $7.00 garage sale purchase apparently included original Renoir painting. It's a picture of a, a very small and just uh, almost inexplicably bad Renoir that the Baltimore Museum of Art uh, seems to think is a big deal. Was what happened in Baltimore with their, I don't know, almost pretending that getting back a painting that had once been stolen from them was of major import and impetus for the site and the movement? No, but I think it certainly further buttresses the movement's central organizing tenant, which is that there is a real problem with overvaluing this charlatan. Because, like you said, that painting is laughably bad. And the museum's response to getting it back, and, and you know, it's great that when something is stolen, it is returned. I don't mean to make fun of that. But the museum's response, which was to treat it like it was a major painting and then to print up a cardboard copy of it that people could pretend to be stealing from the museum and then post pictures on Instagram, was subcomical, utterly, utterly incoherent. Yeah. Depressing, yes, indeed, depressing. So that that brings us to Monday when there were about a dozen people and journalists with microphones, cameras, and notebooks outside the MFA in Boston where, well, tell people what you organized and who showed up and the message you were trying to communicate. Well, the message we were trying to communicate is that the presence of six Renoir paintings, which are currently on display at the Museum of Fine Arts, considering the fact that there are literal masterpieces, truly beautiful paintings in storage in the, in the Museum of Fine Arts basement uh, that could be on display were it not for these six Renoirs represents an act of aesthetic terrorism and really dilutes the visitor's experience and the collection. So you, one of the things you did at the MFA earlier this week, we're recording this on Tuesday, so I guess this was yesterday, was that your action at the MFA included kind of Westboro Baptist Church style signs, um, including one that says God hates Renoir, which I read as a, in addition to, to kind of pointedly addressing Renoir, it's also kind of a wry commentary on absolutist American political slash hate groups. Was that, is that part of the intent behind Monday's action? Absolutely. And if, I mean, I think we're, we're having, we're enjoying ourselves, right? And, and it's easy to sort of find the humor both in the critiques I put up, like those sort of pithy, distilled witticisms I, I, I put up on the, uh, on the account, but also just in the sort of conversation and complaining. It, it is humorous, and, but it's also serious. Like there is a serious critique that I would like to 
get across not just about sort of American rhetoric and, and our absolutism, as you put it, but also just sort of like museums are exclusive spaces. They're exclusionary spaces. And it's to the detriment of everybody that they are like that. In addition to the God Hates Renoir sign, there was one that said aesthetic terrorism. There, I mean, the signs are were full of references to kind of other signs that pop up at campaign events or or, or anywhere. Sure, I think also the 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 central tenant of we are not iconoclasts. Renoir just sucks at painting. That's the ground the movement is really trying to stake out. So I am not myself on Instagram. Maybe I should be, but I understand that through your Instagram, you have come to, digitally anyway, know a relative of Renoir's. Well, I'm, I would say through my Instagram, I have become aware of the existence of Renoir's great-great-granddaughter. Yes. She has Is been she supportive actively, of your efforts? <laughs> she has been actively trolling my account for months now, frequently writing Renoir is amazing after every, on every picture that I put up. And one time going so far as to tell me, and I quote, when your great-great-grandfather paints something worth $173 million, you can talk. But until then, I believe the free market has spoken and Renoir doesn't suck at painting. Uh, and therein is the crux of much of it. Yeah, I would say that if we use the free market as our barometer for whether or not something sucks, everything from climate change to shadow slavery is going to not suck then. And the MFA would have more than one Dale Chihuly. Oh my God, they would have so many <laughs> Dale Chihuly's. <laughs> Max Geller, thanks so much for talking with me. <laughs> hey, it was a real uh, pleasure. It was a treat. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.